Professor, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. My pleasure to be with you, Dimitri. Now, you're perhaps best known for your research and your work involving the prosecution of Nazi war criminals in the Holocaust. What guided you to that area of interest? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so right after college, I had a uh, Fulbright Fellowship to Germany. And it was uh, during the time that I was on this uh, Fulbright that I became really interested in how um, countries deal with legacies of atrocity. And um, and then when I started law school, I started, I, I had just continued to be sort of fascinated by, um, by the way the law actually played a very valuable and important role in um, as a tool of dealing with um, these uh, past uh, horrific state-sponsored events. Uh, a lot of people often, there's been a lot of focus in recent years about the role that, uh, let's say, memorials or museums play as tools for reckoning with the past of a nation. Uh, I became really just interested in um, the legal process itself and how criminal trials play this uh, critical role as a way of kind of um, a nation's negotiating with its um, with some of its uh, unsavory past moments. Now, you hear about efforts to prosecute these war criminals all the time. Um, a few years back, you specifically focused your efforts on John Demyanik. Why is that? Well, Demyanik was an interesting case because I had actually started out, this is a Again, now it goes back over two decades. I published a book that was about um, the Nuremberg trial, then about the Eichmann trial. And, um, and even at the time that I was writing about the Eichmann trial, I had written very briefly about this um, subsequent trial that took place in Israel uh, involving this uh, John Ivan Damyanyuk, this uh, um, native Ukrainian who had then emigrated to the United States after the Second World War who was accused of being this particularly notorious um, death camp guard at Treblinka. And, um, and at the time, uh, when I was writing about uh, in this earlier book, I basically was describing how this Israeli trial kind of turned into a real nightmare because it ended up that the Israelis ultimately recognized that they got the wrong guy. Um, years later, it just coincidentally, I was a visiting professor at uh, Humboldt University in Berlin uh, this was in 2009, when Demyanyuk suddenly um, was back in the headlines. Uh, he had just been um, stripped of his citizenship uh, in the United States for the second time, and we can kind of go into the details of this bizarre legal ordeal that he went through. And he was deported uh, to Germany to now uh, stand trial, not on the charges that he was falsely charged with in Israel, but on charges that actually were um, were supported by solid evidence. And so I just happened to be in Germany. I had already done some research about his earlier Israeli trial. And so I uh, managed to uh, play journalist. I was, um, I got an assignment from Harper's Magazine to cover the trial in Munich. And then I turned that uh, magazine assignment into a book. Can you describe the differences between the prosecution in Israel and the subsequent one in Germany? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so we do need to, I mean, again, it's, it's a kind of um, really uh, involved and bizarre story. So uh, Demyanyuk, um, he had uh, come to the United States, as I said, after the war in 1952, 
Uh, he became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1958. He lived basically kind of a pretty unruffled uh, life in a suburban Cleveland. He worked as a machinist from Ford. He had a kind of nice middle class um, a lifestyle. And then in the mid 70s, uh, American prosecutors and um, immigration naturalization service agents started becoming more interested in pursuing um, Nazi collaborators who had come into the United States by basically uh, presenting false information on visas or immigration documents. And um, through kind of strange means, they um, Demyanyuk ended up on their radar. And then as they started investigating uh, Demyanyuk, um, evidence started to emerge that, oh, well, this wasn't just any old collaborator. This was someone who seemed to be a really notorious guard at Treblinka, someone who the uh, few survivors of Treblinka, uh, Treblinka had uh, described as Ivan the Terrible, really someone who was like sociopathically cruel, uh, kind of um, satisfying all our Hollywood images of what a, you know, SS uh, killing center guard uh, would be like. In this case, not an SS, but kind of a collaborative guard. And uh, he ultimately was uh, extradited to Israel to stand trial as this uh, legendarily cruel guard at Treblinka. And uh, he ultimately was convicted. He was sentenced to death in Israel. Had he been executed, he would have been only the uh, second person ever executed in Israeli history. In fact, until today, uh, up until now, uh, Adolf Eichmann remains the only person uh, ever executed in Israeli history. Um, but during this mandatory uh, appellate process, um, which happens to just co uh, coincidentally uh, coincide with the unraveling of the Soviet Union, uh, suddenly uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys got um, access to all this information that had been kind of moldering in KGB files. And the information made pretty clear that um, Israel had the wrong guy, that this Ivan the Terrible was not uh, Ivan Demyanyuk, but this Ivan Marchenko, who bore a kind of negligible but not insignificant resemblance to Demyanyuk himself. But making this whole thing into kind of a legal perfect storm, this evidence also wasn't entirely exculpatory um, because it indicated that if Demyanyuk had not been Ivan the Terrible, he probably had been Ivan the Not-So-Hot. That is, he was, the evidence indicated that he had been a guard at this at Sobibor killing center, um, not someone who was distinguished by his cruelty, but had served as a killing center guard. And those were the charges that he stood, um, that he was tried for in Germany. And he was ultimately convicted. This was a trial that started in 2009, dragged on to 2011. He was ultimately convicted and he actually died as his uh, conviction was still under appeal. You know, as a Soviet-born Jew whose family members have been killed and displaced by the war, I can't imagine any reasonable person making the argument that these uh, murders should be prosecuted irrespective of how long it takes, right? I wonder if you've ever been confronted with the argument that going after these folks as they get into their 90s, sometimes beyond, perhaps misuses government resources, perhaps doesn't serve justice. Have you ever had those arguments brought before you? And if so, how do you respond to them? Yeah, routinely. Absolutely, Dimitri. I've certainly uh, heard those arguments. And I guess 
I think one of the things we, we need to distinguish is, I think we do need to distinguish between, let's say, trying someone, convicting them, and the level of punishment that they deserve. And uh, to my mind, I think it's appropriate to uh, try people even decades after uh, participating, basically as being, you know, in a sense, foot soldiers in genocide. Um, it doesn't strike me that there should be any statute of limitations that... Uh, that applies to acts of genocide. We don't have statute of limitations applying to simple murder uh, in this country. So it doesn't seem like if you're basically a, um, an accessory to the killing of basically hundreds of thousands of defenseless uh, citizens, uh, I don't see why you should be the beneficiary of some type of misplaced notion that, well, so much time has passed, um, what's the point of trying you? That said, you know, I do think there's a question about, uh, you know, throwing someone who's, let's say, 92 years old in jail for 10 years or something like that. Um, so I think in, in some sense, the most important thing is to have the symbolic statement of a conviction. And then in terms of the actual prison sentence, uh, I'm not as um, convinced of the necessity of really seeing these people put in uh, prison. Uh, but I do think it is important to make that symbolic statement that um, that uh, no matter how long it takes, uh, you know, the wheels of justice to should turn to make sure that these perpetrators or accessories of genocide are ultimately uh, brought to justice. You know, in the case of someone like a Demyanyuk, I think he, uh, you know, felt sorry for himself um, simply because... Um, uh, you know, there were a lot of, and it is true, there were a lot of people who had a much more um, aggressive role in uh, Nazi genocide who escaped trial altogether. And, you know, but again, I think we can say that, you know, maybe on, on some level, Demyanyuk was, um, could imagine himself as unlucky, but I don't think you can consider yourself as a victim of any kind of prosecutorial vendetta because the fact that other people escape punishment does not in any way ameliorate your guilt. Yeah, we're all familiar with all of the efforts over the years, right? Everybody's seen the books and the movies, Eichmann and Mengele and all the other folks that uh, various countries have tried to prosecute over time. Simply as a function of the way time works, very few of these folks remain, right? What have countries done, the law enforcement arms, of various countries done to find and bring to justice these folks? Well, right now I'd say basically, I mean, the, the countries that were probably um, the most active um, most recently have been probably the United States and Germany. Um, the, uh, which is not to say, you know, in the post-war period, there were many, many trials that were uh, conducted. And, um, you know, Poland conducted, you know, thousands of trials. I mean, some a lot of these trials involve collaboration. So it very often it's very difficult to distinguish between the trials that were dealing with collaborators, Nazi regime, as opposed to trials that were dealing, let's say, uh, specifically to the atrocities and the exterminatory policy that was directed against the Jewish population of Europe. Um, but certainly there were trials in the Netherlands, many trials in the Netherlands, many trials in France. Um, as the decades passed, a lot of uh, prosecutors turned their attention elsewhere. And uh, the United States actually created this uh, dedicated um, bureau within the Department of Justice called the Office of Special Investigations. 
And they were pretty um, aggressive and pretty successful in trying to um, find uh, these uh, collaborators, um, who, Nazi collaborators who had come to the country under uh, false pretenses. Now, given the, as you know, the kind of the, um, the jurisdictional profile of these cases, um, American prosecutors couldn't prosecute, couldn't actually bring charges for these so-called extraterritorial crimes, crimes that took place in the European theater uh, in which Americans were neither the perpetrators nor the victims. Uh, so what the Americans could do, though, is they could strip these people of citizenship and then send them to countries where they could be uh, tried. Uh, so that's, for example, what happened with Demyanya, first when he was sent to Israel and then when he was sent to uh, Germany. In, in just in the last couple of years, Germany, once Demyanya was uh, convicted uh, in 2011, uh, German prosecutors kind of used the precedent of his conviction to then reopen cases that had really been kind of lying dormant for almost decades in German uh, prosecutorial and investigatory files. And uh, there have been a few convictions that have followed uh, from that. As you point out, by necessity, there are not going to be a lot of these cases because you're talking about people who, at the youngest, are going to be in their early 90s uh, to be um, to have any kind of um, complicity in these crimes. And in fact, you have this very bizarre circumstance. Recently, there was um, this uh, woman, first woman really, to be uh, convicted under this theory that was... Um, articulated in the Demyanya case, this uh, Imgad uh, Firshna was her name, and she was secretary to the uh, commandant of uh, the Stutthof uh, camp, which is near uh, Gdansk, uh, now in Poland, the former Danzig. And, um, and she was convicted, and this is a woman who's in her early 90s, convicted in Germany, but she was tried as a juvenile, just tried in juvenile court uh, because she was basically uh, 17 when she started her secretarial service. And so you do have these, you end up having these sort of very strange uh, kind of legal uh, procedures and accommodations to deal with the fact that, you, you know, you're dealing with crimes that um, are, you know, just about like 80 years old now. Yeah. Now you've written uh, as well in connection with the law catching up to Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, a bit of a pivot. Um, from what we've been discussing. I'd like to talk to you about the ICC warrant that was issued yeah. uh, for uh, Vladimir Putin, something uh, with which many agree. Is it simply a symbolic gesture or do you see it having any real claws as time passes? You know, it's very hard to say. It's a really interesting question because I, I even remember back, you know, you probably remember as well um, with the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY, and, uh, you know, there was a time where the ICTY, for example, issued a, uh, an indictment, an arrest warrant for Slobodan Milosevic, the former, um, you know, president of uh, Serbia. And at the time, people were saying, this is just a symbolic statement. There's no way that Milosevic is ever going to end up in The Hague. Uh, in fact, many people thought that Milosevic, um, Milosevic, um, uh, Radovan Karadzic, who was the former uh, president of this breakaway uh, Republic of Srpska, 
and also this Ratko Mladic, who was the general who was responsible for the um, the massacre of 7,000 uh, Muslim uh, men and, and boys in uh, Srebrenica. All these big fish, they thought, just symbolic. They're never going to end up prosecuting them. Well, lo and behold, they ended up prosecuting all three. Now, Milosevic died before uh, his trial ended, but Karadzic and Mladic were both convicted and are still, you know, right now in prison. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it's entirely symbolic because I think it's very difficult to predict what will happen uh, in the future. It is true that it's kind of impossible to imagine um, Putin ending up uh, in the International Criminal Court without some kind of regime change in Russia, but is it impossible to imagine some kind of regime change in Russia as the war continues to, you know, assuming that it continues to uh, drag on and um, whatever domestic support uh, erodes. It's, you know, very hard to say, Dimitris, but I wouldn't say it's, it's absolutely impossible. Now, in that same article, you discussed Donald Trump, right? And that's just a can of worms you can open forever um, as it relates to his legal issues. The, at the time you wrote that article, the only active case was the one in New York City. And that case, as well as this case that is that was just indicted a few days ago and uh, on which he's appearing today, seems to have this idea, right, that it's a political prosecution. Do you think that even the perception of that is harmful to the country's morale. Absolutely, for sure. I think the idea, the way in which he has been um, systematically attacking the integrity, you know, first he was attacking the integrity of the FBI, and now he's really attacking the, uh, the integrity of the federal judiciary, both the Department of Justice and the federal court system. And uh, I think that's incredibly destructive to a nation that's committed to um, the rule of law under uh, under the Constitution, and uh, what I think is also incredibly regrettable and uh, and dangerous is the fact that uh, so many members of the Republican leadership um, simply fall in line with those attacks. So you know, even someone like uh, you know Ron DeSantis, who is you know he's running against Trump for the nomination, instead of you know even just being neutral, saying, "Look, the charges are very serious." This is a serious indictment. Um, we'll see what happens in the court of law. Instead of that, he joins Trump in attacking this as a, you know, a dark day in American history and uh, and indication that the federal law has been, you know, weaponized in a deep, in a political sense. It's it's really disgraceful. Um, you know, at least we see people like um, Chris Christie. Um, you know, standing up for legal process. And interestingly, William Barr, you know, the former um, attorney general under Donald Trump himself, noting how uh, serious and uh, and um, well presented that uh, 49 page indictment is. The problem, it seems to me, is that if you start with the premise that prosecutors have limited resources and they all do, that's undeniable. Right. You open the floodgates to these kinds of arguments. Right. Because by the nature of that office and when I say that office, I mean various prosecutorial branches around the country, they have to pick and choose. Right. And they always have to choose um, crimes to prosecute that they deem within the public interest. And you open the door to these kinds of political prosecution arguments. 
for sure. I mean, and I'm sure his defense lawyers will bring up uh, at trial the notion of selective prosecution. My, my own feeling is that's not going to fly. I mean, I think the and I think you know this uh, probably even better than than I do, that uh, the kind of arguments that will really gain traction, let's say, among uh, Donald Trump's political base are very different than the legal arguments that are going to gain traction in a federal courtroom. I don't see that argument about selective prosecution going anywhere because there really are there are a number of cases that you can point to of people being prosecuted for um, withholding national defense information and uh, people actually getting pretty serious uh, criminal penalties for having done so. And, you know, this what about is in the way in which like, well, what about uh, Joe Biden? Didn't he have um, uh, classified material Then they discovered that he had taken some classified material? Well, again, I think we need to distinguish between um, someone who immediately surrenders that material when he was aware that he has it and then cooperates fully with authorities and someone who appears, at least allegedly, has lied to the FBI, misled his own lawyers, and uh, basically engaged in you know real obfuscation. So I, I don't know about you, but I don't see those arguments flying, at least in the courtroom. Again, they, they might certainly gain traction with his base. I don't see selective prosecution flying. Uh, depending on the legal standard that a judge applies, you may have to show actual malice and other things. I can't imagine that'll happen. Um, I also can't imagine he'll show that uh, these documents were declassified in some way right. and deemed personal documents. But the January 6th potential prosecution, that's an interesting one. What relationship do you think that case has with the current First Amendment precedent in this country, right, particularly things like incitement of violence, other exceptions, right, uh, under Brandenburg. What's your position on that? Yeah, I mean, that's fairly interesting. So, you know, as we know, this is probably not the last indictment that uh, Trump is going to face. I mean, it's, he's arguably going to be, uh, I mean, it looks like in August, he'll probably be indicted in uh, Fulton County, uh, Georgia, uh, for interfering with the um, election results in, in that state. And then we know that um, he's also facing potential indictment uh, again from the, you know, from this uh, investigation from the Department of Justice into uh, his activities and trying to remain in power, uh, culminating in the um, the uh, you know the riot and the uh, storming of the Capitol on January sixth. And what's interesting about that latter um, uh, investigation is whether he would be um, accused of incitement uh, as opposed, because there are a number of other things that he can be accused of also. He can certainly be accused, for example, of, um, of conspiracy basically to defraud the United States. He can be uh, accused of uh, interfering with a, a federal, uh, with a, a federal proceeding, that is with the tabulation of the electoral, count, uh, of the electoral college votes in uh, Congress on January 6th. So it's not necessarily the case that he would be uh, accused of incitement itself. And I think if I'm intuiting where you're going with the question is, you know, I do think the incitement prosecution could be a troubling one. That could be, um, you know, the, the, the business of the Brandenburg erects, as you point out, or as you're suggesting, a very high bar 
I mean, you need to demonstrate, um, you know, imminent lawlessness as a result of uh, the uh, statements that you're making. And I'm not sure if uh, his statements necessarily rise to that uh, bar, but um, I do think that um, federal prosecutors could nonetheless indict him on some of these other things uh, about the way in which he tried to um, arrange to have false slates of electors submitted to Congress, um, the way in which um, he tried to interfere with the tabulation of the Electoral College votes, um, you know, some of these other things that uh, Eastman was involved with, that his, you know, some of his supporters were involved with um, as well, because it wasn't just, remember, January 6th, it was really a whole concerted effort on his part um, to try to uh, remain in power. Now, obviously, you're not a politician, you're an academic. What impact do you think this will have on 2024? If any, I know there's an issue with timing and whether or not these cases will be tried prior to the election. If they're not tried prior to the election and he happens to win, I can't even imagine the chaos that would ensue then. How do you see these four, some of them are prosecutions now, some of them are still investigations. How do you see how these cases will impact the election? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit hard to say. I guess my senses, and again, I could be obviously completely wrong about this, but um, you know, we saw um, when he was indicted in New York with the, um, you know, that 34 count indictment uh, dealing with the payment of the hush money to Stormy Daniels. Um, we saw that he certainly got a bump in his fundraising efforts and that certainly, you know, galvanized his base. But I do think there's a difference between the kinds of things that galvanize his base and, and the things that contribute to his general electability. And I do think, at least, I'm not sure if I'm uh, confusing my hopes uh, with my predictions, but uh, I do think that, um, that this will erode perceptions of his electability, just the kind of the number of uh, indictments that he'll be fighting off simultaneously. And you know, I do think there's a kind of almost collective exhaustion with him in the United States. And I think, you know, even on the campaign trail right now, he seems to uh, be able to do nothing except present himself as the sum of all victimization of his base. He really doesn't have much of a vision for this nation. The only vision he has is to really kind of use this apocalyptic language about, uh, you know, we're looking at the final battle for the United States. And uh, I, I just, I, I just don't see that as ultimately convincing um, enough Americans to make him electable should he gain the Republican nomination, which is certainly not clear at this point either. Now, I want to finish up by talking a bit about an article that you wrote for The Guardian entitled How the U.S. Supreme Court is Turning the Constitution into a Suicide Pact. Mm. Discuss that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think I wrote that this was um, at the time that the um, this is about a uh, right now the court is about to hand down a bunch of important decisions uh, at the end of its term. And last year, we know that it handed down a bunch of very important decisions um, overturning uh, Roe v. Wade. Uh, they made a decision that uh, seemed to that that pretty uh, dramatically expanded uh, Second Amendment rights, their interpretation of rights to gun ownership. And they also uh, offered a um, 
a, uh, they rendered a decision that basically limited the capacity of um, executive administrative agencies to fight climate change. And it, it just struck me that uh, the Supreme Court was, we know that the Constitution is you know, a pretty open-ended document. Um, it's pretty open textured in a lot of clauses. I mean, things like uh, which due process of law mean, what is um, free speech mean? I mean, this is pretty open ended stuff that requires uh, interpretation. And, uh, and it struck me that the court was interpreting this language in ways that were really kind of frustrating the, um, the political and democratic goals of lots of Americans. I mean, on one level, we live in an incredibly polarized society, incredibly polarized nation. But that said, I think it's mistaken to say that the polarization is 50-50. Um, I think, for example, if you look at something like uh, Roe v. Wade, 60% of Americans uh, supported uh, abortion rights or continue to support uh, abortion rights. If you look at um, the Second Amendment, a very substantial majority of Americans support reasonable gun control. Uh, a very substantial uh, percentage of Americans believe that um, human beings are contributing to climate change and that we need to have aggressive responses to it uh, if we're going to secure a, a good future for our children. And I, I just think it's incredibly... Um, bad for this country when the Supreme Court basically interferes with the democratic process and stops elected officials from shaping um, reasonable responses to issues that um, that the majority of American care about Americans care about deeply. Well, it'll be interesting few months uh, coming up here. Maybe we'll talk again. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. And thanks for your terrific questions, Dimitri. And uh, yeah, I look forward to continuing uh, the conversation. Thank you, sir.